Thank you, team. Open up in your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, we've got a lot to cover, so I hope you're going to listen quick this morning. Acts chapter 9, looking at verse 1 through 31, this uh, section of text I've labeled the sermon this morning, God's sovereignty. We're going to look at what is God's sovereignty, what does this mean in the life of the believer, what did this mean in the life of Stephen, in the life of Saul, and everything that occurred and transpired during this section of the text. So join me as I read Acts chapter 9, verse 1, reading through verse 31. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And he has not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and set him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. 
Dear God, thank you so much for your precious word. Thank you for the gift that you have given to us of salvation, Father. Thank you for giving us this example of how you come in and miraculously transform our lives, Father. We thank you so much. Give us ears to hear. God, give us wisdom. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. So as we looked at this section, or as we look at this section, and we're talking about God's sovereignty, uh, I want us to quickly give a brief introduction as to what has led us up to this point for a background context to really understand what is actually happening, the implications, the impacts of everything that Saul had done, and what this really means in his transformation and his conversion from who he was into who he is now. If you look at Acts chapter 7, verse 58, we looked at this a few weeks ago, we see that Stephen was introduced to us as one of the first martyrs of the church, and this was the first bloodletting that happened that encouraged the church to scatter. And it says here, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So here we are introduced to a little bit about who Saul is in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. And not only that, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we see that Saul wasn't just present, that he approved of the execution. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, Saul approved of the execution. Hence, they laid the garments down at his feet. Now, that word execution also means literally translated as murdered. So whether you think of it as an execution from a judicial standpoint or murder, it was not good, obviously. Now, in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, we see the terminology that Luke is writing in this narrative that Saul was attempting to destroy the church, and the terminology is used ravaging the church. Now, look at what happens in the sequence of events that think about the Christians at this point in time. You have a newly elected deacon that just came up and immediately he is killed for proclaiming the name of Jesus. Do you not think that the Christians at that time is asking, where is God during all of this? Why is this happening? This isn't fair. How dare they do this to Stephen? This guy had such a bright future and it just got ripped away from him. I think that's very normal for us as human beings to look at our events and evil things that happen to us on this earth through the creaturely lens, but we have to be cautious that we are not projecting ourselves into the will of God and we are assuming what God desires for us and said we need to be the servants and this is what we see happening here and this is what we're going to be looking at in God's sovereignty. So as we look at this, how many times do we in our lives shake our fist at God and say, why have you allowed this to happen to me? This is not what I had picked for myself. This is not where I thought I was going to be. How dare you, God, show me something else. I want to move on to something else. Well, that's because we are relying on ourselves for our comfort and not on God. And as we look at the word sovereignty, here's the definition of what sovereignty means. The supreme power or authority. Now, in understanding God's sovereignty, here's the key here. Understanding God's sovereignty helps you understand that God is ultimately in control over every situation and is working things out. Here's here's it right here, ladies and gentlemen. He is working things out to his glory and for his purpose. Not our own, but for his glory and his purpose. Now, as the Christians at the execution of Stephen might be questioning why him, we see what happened out of this. What from our lens and our perspective seemed horrific and seemed tragic, we see the sovereignty of God orchestrating all things to his good and to his purpose. And if we skip ahead in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we see what happened when the church was scattered after the execution of Stephen. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen 
traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And then if you look down into the next verse, in uh, verse 21, it says, and a great number believed. So when the church is persecuted and the church is either gathered or scattered, what still remains? A great number will believe. So that even when something looks bad, even when it doesn't make sense to us, when we rely on the sovereignty of God, that God is ultimately in control and has power over every situation, we can find comfort in that. And this is what we see in this text. Now, as a personal appeal, when you find an evil action or you've gone through some form of trauma or something else like that, we see that God is still there. At the execution of and the martyrdom of Stephen, God was there. Now, here's what's awesome about this section of the text. In this chapter, in, verse, or in chapter 9, we see that Saul, unbeknownst to him, is working towards the chief end of what God had ordained him to do. He had no clue, that was not his journey, that was not his passion, that was not his vision, and we see in our first point of this sermon tonight, or today, God pursues those he chooses. God pursues those he chooses. God chose Stephen to be martyred, to spread the church and the gospel message to those regions. And in Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 8, let's look at this, and I want us to see how God is supernaturally stepping into his creation as he sees fit to use them for his glory. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 1 through 8. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Now look at the importance of this section of the passage here. What was Saul going to go do? He had one mission at this point in time, am I correct? One mission and one focus, to murder anyone he found belonging to the way. Now, a, a brief side note here, when you see the way, uh, this is before they were called Christians, which was also supposed to be an insult of little Christs. When you see the way, this is in direct confrontation to Judaism at that time, which also had a understanding as true and false with Jesus, but the way meaning Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There's only one way, not two ways. There's not this and that. And when you look at this, this is used in this text to appeal to what was happening at this point in time. Paul was going to murder anyone following the way that was not following the Jewish practices. And what we see here is that as Saul is pursuing to murder Christians, that, that terminology you see here in your text, breathing threats and murder, when you look at that phrase and you actually translate that from the original, what that means is it's not breathing out, it's an inhale. So what you see here is, think of a, a, a horse, a, a steed that is about to go into battle and it's inhaling as it's moving forward. So he found his passion as he's inhaling the hate to go and murder the Christians. That is what he is going to do. He is not going to Damascus for anything else. He is going with one mission and one mission only and that's Saul's mission and that is to go and kill the Christians. 
and that makes it look bleak. And do you not think that the Jews in Damascus knew that he was coming? Do you not think that they had heard what had happened in Jerusalem at the martyrdom of Stephen as all of the Christians began to run? Now, would you say that Saul's a prime candidate for salvation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, but we make these distinctions in our minds. The way I view Saul as I'm reading this is no different than how we would view terrorists, the ISIS organization, or even Osama bin Laden. Someone that you would never expect to come to Christ. Someone that is so polar opposite, even remotely pursuing after God, that is how you need to view your mind around Saul and this incredible conversion. Now, here's what's interesting. Look at verse 3 to 4. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. So he's still on mission. He knows exactly where he's going, what he's going to do. He had victory with Stephen. I got the support letters from the synagogues. I'm going to go and execute my will. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? See, Saul is heading to Damascus again, like I just said, to perform these atrocities. He's not looking for salvation. He does not care about salvation. He doesn't want to hear about the gospel. He wants to purge anyone on this earth who follows Christ. And as he's on his way to Damascus to perform these atrocities, God sovereignly and supernaturally stops Saul dead in his tracks and executes judgment against Saul. Now, here's an important note for the background on this transformation and actually what occurred on that road to Damascus. In Acts chapter 22, verse 6 through 11, we see a firsthand account from uh, Paul uh, as he is saying exactly what happened here. And I think this gives us some great background context to truly figure out like the supernatural, miraculous intercession that God made through Jesus to Saul. Look at this. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now look at this. At high noon in the Middle East, God stops Saul for what Saul thought was his purpose, redirects him for God's purpose. Now, when you see this word here, God revealed himself to Saul as a great light. In Acts chapter 26, verse 13, Paul again reemphasizes this firsthand account by saying that the light was brighter than the sun. So think about this. In the Middle East, and I've been near this location, in the Middle East, high noon, the sun, and God's glory is so bright, it blotted out the sun. No wonder Saul fell on his face in complete submission and reverence to the glory of God. And he was supernaturally spoken to from God and redirected on what he was supposed to do. And what's awesome about this and about God's sovereignty and about how God pursues those he chooses is that God chose Saul for his purpose. God allowed the events of Stephen to occur and even allowed Saul to make his way all the way up to Damascus, unbeknownst to Saul, that Saul was in the will of God, even when he was performing, from our perspective, these evil actions. 
That is incredible when you really wrap your mind around that. When you think about the sovereignty of God, even when it is through evil atrocities that God is still supernaturally acting and moving and coordinating things to his glory. God chose Saul for his purpose, and this shows us that God is always working and orchestrating everything for his end and for his glory, not our own. It's us getting out of the way and recognizing the true sovereign creator of the universe and accepting God's will for our lives and pursuing after holiness as he is holy and doing what God wants us to do. Now look what occurs next as Saul is rapidly changing the trajectory of where he is going to, what he is actually going to do, but still is going where he is wanting to go, which is awesome how God allowed him to go that place, but then just change your priorities real quick, brother. We're not going to do that. You're going to do what I want you to do. Now look at this. In Acts chapter 9, verse 6, God gives Saul his first command to step in obedience to Christ. Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Now, I want to do a quick comparison. How do you think he was going to previously enter into Damascus? I mean, he's got his squadron of guys riding with him. He's probably going to ride in there, starting to point at Jews, saying, you're next, you're next. And now he's blind, being led by the hand. How embarrassing is that? He has been now humbled. And this gets us to the second point of this text. Man submits to God's sovereignty. You have no other option. You submit to God's sovereignty. God tells Saul what to do, and Saul does it. Saul isn't given any further instruction other than go and do this, and I will tell you what to do next. Now look at Acts chapter 9, verse 6 through 9. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. These men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. You may be thinking, all right, Ethan... In this text, I get it, but God doesn't always do that. He doesn't always supernaturally come into somebody's life and says, go do this. I beg to differ. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to look at this very briefly. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Does that not sound very similar? Abram's just chilling in his own country with his own people, doing his own thing, then supernaturally, God says, hey, leave and go here. And what did Abram say? Roger that, in route. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going to follow wherever it is that you're taking me. Now, look at how God used and chose these two men supernaturally to reveal himself to, and look how they responded in obedience. He told Abram, leave your hometown, your friends, and I'm going to show you where to go. Saul, you're not going to do what you want to do. You're not going to live for yourself but I'm still going to let you go into Damascus, but I'm going to tell you what to do next. And so here's a key distinction for us to take away about God's sovereignty. When God prompts you, you obey and you submit. You don't sit there and argue with God. You obey and you submit. If God is prompting you and pushing you and calling you to do something, you do it and you submit, and we're gonna see what happens as a result when you submit to the will of God and you obey the will of God. So, as we look at both Abram and Saul, we see that neither of them were actually of the faith, yet they obeyed anyway. That is the supernatural work of God going and speaking into the life of an individual, redirecting them to where he wants them to go. Now, 
look at another man who submits to God on a more positive scale. Look at Acts chapter 9, verse 10 through 19. We see that this is a man of faith, a disciple of Jesus, and a follower of the way. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Can you imagine Ananias being told, hey, guess what? You're going to go minister to this dude who's probably going to kill you, at least according to Ananias' infill. He doesn't have the intel that he just got supernaturally changed by God. He's still operating off this. And what does he do? Look at this. He goes. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. See, even in the life of a believer, even in the life of a follower of Christ, God is still supernaturally interacting with us personally in this universe. And he tells you, and he orchestrates you, and he directs, and he guides you, and he shows you what he wants you to do. If you're walking with him, it becomes easier to understand, and it becomes still a a difficult step to take. But when you submit yourself to God and you obey what he asks you to do, you are doing what you have been created to do for his glory and for his purpose, and Ananias does this beautifully. And when God said to Ananias, his response was immediately, here I am. How many times has God prompted you to do something and you're like, mm-mm, not listening to that. You're at the gas station. Hey, go share, nope, not gonna share that. His car needs more gas than mine. I wanna get out of here. No, here I am. What is it you want of me, Lord? I am here to execute your will. That is the proper response. Ananias was living in a state of submission and being ready and willing to go when God called and prompted him to go and to do what he wanted him to do. And what did he say to do? Go, rise, and go to the street called straight. Now, here's what's awesome. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus told Saul earlier is go into the city, and I will tell you what to do next. See, God is not going to call you into something that he is not going to equip you for. God is not going to say to Saul, hey, go into the city. Let's see if he figures this out. No, if God called Saul to do this, God is going to arm Saul with the tools necessary to go exactly where he needs to be and do exactly what he needs to do so long as he is walking with the Lord, and that's exactly what happened, which is why we see this qualifier in here that God told Ananias to go to that street named Straight. Not only that, we get that additional qualifier about whose house that was. So we see that God is still sovereignly guiding Saul all along the journey. And this, again, shows us All things work together for his good and his glory and for his purpose. Now, here's the thing that we have to accept about all of this. We have, on this side of redemptive history, the ability to look back at the text and to see, yeah, of course, all white, you should never have hesitated, just go. But we in our lives, we deal with this on a day-to-day basis. And here is something that we need to walk away with. We may not know what, where, or how he works, but we must trust that he is. We must be ready to do whatever God intends for us to do when he calls us to do it. Otherwise, what on earth are we doing here? We have such a short time on this earth. Let's get about doing something. Let's quit contemplating our theological navels and let's get out there and share Jesus with somebody. 
Let's be disciples. Let's understand what Scripture says, and let's, let, let's be on mission together. No one else is going to do this. God has equipped every single person in here with unique and distinct giftings, stuff that I can't do, Pastor Trailer can't do, the staff of Olive can't do, but guess who can do it? You. Don't look to the pastors to do everything. We can do more together corporately as a whole if we're all on mission together, if we submit ourselves to what God has us doing, but the only way we can actually do that is if we're rooted in God's scriptures. Otherwise, we're all going to be emotionally offended. But when we allow the Spirit of God to work through us, through the reading and proclamation of the scriptures, we will start to see unity, we will see peace, and we will see growth. Not because we've done it, but because God has done that. And that leads us into the third point that we so often try and think and manipulate this otherwise. The results are left to God. Not to us. Praise God they're not left to us. If it was left to Ethan Jago, it would... I don't know where I'd be. Praise God that that's not the case. The results are left to God. And if God is the most supreme, powerful being who knows all, is all, that gives me comfort. And that is why when you understand God's sovereignty, man, it is encapsulating. When you go through loss of a loved one, when you lose a family member, when a, a friend walks away from the faith, or you, you lose your job, you lose a relationship, you lose a child, God's sovereign. God is there. And in that, we can rely and we can relax. Now, here's what's interesting here. When we understand that the results are left to God, we see Ananias goes to Saul. And what happens as soon as Ananias goes to Saul? Well, his eyes are now open, scales fall off, and then immediately he was baptized and committed to Christ's purpose and mission for his life. Now, what did Saul do after Ananias came and healed him? I know what we would probably have done. You're never going to believe what I saw, Ananias. Have you seen Jesus? No, I have. Guess what? It blinded me. And man, I tell you what, let's just sit here and contemplate. I'm going to write a six-series book about coming into contact with Jesus Christ. And I'm just going to sit here by myself, hold this. No, what happened? He immediately went and got baptized, and then look what happened next. Acts chapter 9, verse 20 through 22. And immediately he did what? He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He didn't wait and be like, well, I need to get equipped for... Granted, yes, he was very well versed in the scriptures. Right? He was very well versed under the teachings that he was underneath. But still, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Look at that word. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. That word immediately is the same word used to describe the scales falling off his eyes. So indicating that as quickly as time transpired for the scales to fall off of his eyes, he wasted no time in going and sharing Jesus with others. He didn't sit around and be like, well, let me do another couple evangelism seminars. And this. He went and did it. Because what? Who's he relying on? God. If God equipped him and God put him on mission and the results are left to God, he's going to go and do and worry about everything else? Never. Because God is in control of it. That's God's sovereignty. And that is what we as Christians got to wrap our minds around. And as we look at this, there is no question from Saul about what he was supposed to do. So think about that. I mean, this is just mind-blowing. He just executed Stephen. 
He's on his merry way to Damascus to do the same thing and even more. His sole intention is to ravage the church. As he's there, doo-bopping about his own business, thinking he's going to go do this, God supernaturally changes his life. He still goes to Damascus, complete regeneration of the entire person that Saul is. Not a little bit, not a gradual thing. Immediately, the regeneration preceded his faith, and he stepped into what God had preordained him to do, and he did it. Now look at this. In Acts chapter 9, verse 23 through 30, did Saul make good use of his time that he had? Yes, he did. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Shocking turn of events, is it not? But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. You want to talk about a circle of events. Executed Stephen Jerusalem. Goes to Damascus to execute more. Changed. Comes back to Jerusalem. I mean, this is still fresh. So imagine the reception hearing this guy who was just ordering the execution or approving the execution of Stephen to be out there boldly proclaiming the name of the Lord in the synagogues and convincing many about Jesus. Your testimony that God has given you is so powerful and incredible. Well, Ethan, I wasn't doing all this other stuff. It doesn't matter. Were you dead once and now you're alive in Christ? Yes, that's a rapid transformation. You don't have to be this individual like I was thinking, well, I've got to go through like 17 years of insane addictions, maybe become a drug cartel member, you know, and then God can use me and then my testimony will be incredible. No! Even if you grew up in the middle of nowhere, Beulah, no offense, and all of a sudden, you grew up in the church and everything else, and God saved you, well, I, I don't have anything to compare it to. Yes, you do. Has your desires changed? Has your focus changed? Has your priority and mission changed? It better have if it was true, and it has. And on that, you can rely, and not on yourself. And all of us have a different story that God has allowed us to go through. God has wired each of us uniquely for his glory and for his good, not our own. And we see this happening here, and we see Saul going back. Now, here's four things I want us to walk away with real quick. Four ways that Saul relies on God's sovereignty, and it's four ways that we as Christians can rely on God's sovereignty. Number one, Paul relied on God's sovereignty in his personal life. Look at verse 23 through 24. The Jews wanted to kill him. Paul knew this. He stepped out anyway and did it because he knew that God is going to take care of him. If God wants you dead, guess what's going to happen? You're going to die. If God wants you to live, you're going to live. And in that, Saul trusted in God's sovereignty to keep him alive in his personal life. Number two, Saul relied on God's sovereignty in his acceptance. The disciples were scared of him in verse 26. Last time he was there, he killed one of them. Imagine that greeting. Hey, guys, can I join the club? Mm, no. I don't think so, buddy. But what happened? Did, do we see anything in the text and Saul manipulated Peter and Saul bribed Peter and Saul did this? No. But look at what had happened. Who had a vouch for Saul? Another believer. 
Do you think God supernaturally prompted Barnabas to go and do this on behalf of Saul? Yes. And if you actually look at the entire book of Acts, it's an apologetic of Luke defending the apostleship of Paul, which was a huge issue at that time because to have been an apostle, you had to have seen the resurrected Christ and have been tutelaged by him. Did that happen on the road to Damascus? Yes, it did. And so that is why you see Paul consistently having to defend his apostleship and that's why we have this. But look at how all of this transpired. In his acceptance, Paul relied on God's sovereignty and you see that throughout all of his epistles. Now look at number three. Where did Saul's confidence come from? Saul's confidence, when he was preaching boldly, relied on God's sovereignty. Paul relied on God's sovereignty. You understand what I'm saying, Paul, I mean Saul, right? I mean, we're just semantics at this point in time, right? Saul is Paul, Paul, Saul. All right. In his confidence, Saul relied on God's sovereignty in his confidence. And where do we see that? He preached boldly in verse 28. His confidence came from Christ and the empowerment that God gave Saul. Do you think that Paul or Saul was nervous about proclaiming Jesus about, I wonder what these people are going to think since they know I was just here executing people? He didn't care. His confidence did not come from what he could do. His confidence didn't come from what he knew. His confidence came from God telling him and pushing him out on doing the mission that God had set for him. And then number four, Saul relied on God's sovereignty in his ministry, being accepted by the disciples, preaching to those who God put in his path in the next direction for where he was going to go. And we see that in verse 29 through 30. Now here's the crux of this entire passage right here. The crux of this entire passage is found in verse 31 of Acts chapter 9. Look at this. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had what? Peace. It was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. What happened? It multiplied. Now, beautiful writing here. The narrative starts in complete opposition and contrast to how it ends. It starts in panic, fear, murder, and imprisonment. And it ends in peace, growth, and multiplication. That is incredible. That is powerful. And what we need to understand and what we need to extract out of this text is that when we rely and trust in the sovereignty of God, and we dedicate our lives to him, and we follow him, and we submit to him, and we obey to him, that's all that we can do. The results are left to God. The results are not left to you and me. The results are not for me to sit here and burden myself that I haven't done enough. If you are obeying God, you're submitting with God, you're walking with God, and you're reading God's word, let God give the growth. Let God give the results. Let God multiply. That is the sovereignty of God. As God transformed the life of Saul, God scattered the church, God brought the gospel to all the ends of the earth, starting right there, the first bloodletting of Stephen. God gave the growth, and what looks to be evil from our perspective was in fact the opposite. God allowed that for good, for the multiplication and for the growth of the body. And here's what we're going to end with right here. God is sovereign over all things. Not some things, not the things I think he's sovereign over. Everything in your life, God is sovereign. And when we accept this, And it takes a while. And when we can really let this soak in, life begins to have a different shape. We see situations have a different purpose because we know that we are not relying on ourselves. We're not relying on anybody else. We're relying on the individual who never changes, who is all-powerful, 
And who is eternal? And that is Yahweh God. That is who we are relying on. And that we find comfort. And that we should have peace. Let's pray. Dear holy and majestic Father, we thank you so much for your word, God. We thank you for this incredible story of your sovereignty put on display through the life of Saul, the rapid transformation that you did in his life, God. We know that you will and can do that with us, God. Father, help us submit ourselves to you, Father. Help us obey your promptings of what it is that you're telling us to do, God. Let us trust that the results are left to you. Let us not manipulate things. Let us not fabricate things. Let us not put on a charade anymore, God. Let us be a real people pursuing after God. Father, lighten us this fire and this flame. God, we need you. We need you to help us in our unbelief. We need you to continue to give us wisdom, Father. I ask for your blessing of every man and woman inside this congregation, God, that you will help motivate them and empower them, Father, that they will obey you, Father, that they will accept your sovereignty, that they will call out to the name above every name, and God, that they will pursue after you, Father, that they will get about doing what it is that you want them to do. We are so unworthy, and we are so grateful for your grace and your mercy that you have extended to us, even though we do not deserve it, Father. We love you, and we ask all these things in the name above every name. Amen.